today I want to speak on something that's really cool. And uh, we've, we've often referenced this, but I want to go into a message on it about pulling out the gold. So everybody just with me say, I'm a gold digger. I'm a gold digger. Say it again. Say it like you mean it. I'm a gold digger. Yeah. And uh, I, I want everybody to say it like Corey back there. Could you just give us one example? Say it again. I'm a gold digger. Yeah. Everybody on the count of three. Do it just like that. One, two, three. All right. Now we're talking. Now we sound like a Pentecostal church. All right. Uh, but anyway, I, I want to just talk about that. A lot of times, you know, we say God's called us to be gold diggers, not dirt diggers. Even though a gold digger has to sort through hundreds of thousands of tons of dirt to get one ounce of gold. You don't call them dirt diggers, you call them gold diggers, right? So you're sorting through. How many have watched the gold digger shows on like Discovery Channel and that? Or you've seen the process of gold digging on an industrial level. You are going in and you see all that dirt they're toting out and all that dirt that's going away. And they'll come out and I watch one. They have this little tiny vial of gold. And they've got pile after pile after pile after pile of mounds of dirt. Almost like as big a mounds as a gravel pit, right? That they've dug through to find this little tiny vial. And it paid for their whole season gold digging. This little thing. And, and today I want to really go in detail about what the gold is inside around everyone around you. God created everybody with gold in them. Whether they see it or not, whether they know it or not, whether they're living for Jesus or not, there is gold in everyone around you. Yes. And it is our job to pull out that gold, to surf through and get rid of all the junk, all the nastiness, set that dirt, I like how, how Brittany said that, to the dry places, and set the gold on a pedestal because that's Christ in them, the hope of glory. Yes. So today I want to just start by talking about Central Park. So Central Park, here's a picture of it. And Central Park is this, the, the, the highest valued real estate in New York City. And it sits in the middle of the busyness, the chaos, the muck, the rats, all of that's going on in New York City. And the very center of it is a place called Central Park. Is everybody familiar with that? I'm going to give you some fun facts that you may not be familiar with. Okay, first off, Central Park is 843 acres. I asked somebody, well, how many acres do you think Central Park is? I don't know, 100, 150? 843 acres, 3.5 square miles. This is a big place. Okay, in it, there's a full zoo, a full golf course, all right, 9,000 park benches, 25,000 trees, 58 miles of walking paths. Are, are you following me? In this Central Park, there is, there is several ponds, 38 bridges, okay, 200 species of birds, bird watchers from all over the world where they welcome, Central Park welcomes 40 million visitors a year. In 2005, the land was estimated to be worth over $528 billion. In the middle of New York City, there's this beautiful place called Central Park. Amongst the chaos, amongst the slums, amongst everything else that we see in New York, even recently in the news for the, for the police thing and all that stuff, in the middle of that nastiness, in the middle of chaos, is Central Park, where there's over 50 hot dog, my favorite, over 50 hot dog and ice cream stands. Okay? And, and a few other things, 21 different playgrounds, 29 world-renowned sculptures, this is all in Central Park. It's a, it's a big city within itself. 
Okay, it was the first public community park in the U.S. and the first fully landscaped park in the U.S. Every bit of Central Park is landscaped. Even though it's made to look natural and you think it's, it's all natural, it was, it was landscaped, every bit of it. The ponds are man-made. It's beautiful. There's two ice skating rinks. There's an outdoor amphitheater. And it hosted the largest concert in history of 980,000 people for Garth Brooks in the late 90s. Central Park, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of dirt, in the midst of drug dealing, in the midst of, of high pressures, high stress, econ economical things. I mean, you, you look at Wall Street, you look at all that stuff, and in the middle of it is this beautiful place called Central Park. And if we could just look at everybody around us like Central Park, if we could, just, if we could be a church, what would a church look like who looked at everybody around them as somebody with value, somebody with gold in them, and somebody that had a central part that was ready to arise and be beautified into becoming the most powerful person on the planet? What would a church look like that was accepted of anybody, no matter what lifestyle they chose, no matter what they, they did or didn't do, no matter what sin they were involved in, who was comfortable enough with our God to know that He's going to take care of them as they come in and say yes to Jesus? What would a church look like that was fully accepted of everybody to know that they have value and know that God has a purpose and a plan for them? What would a church look like with the power of God behind them in unity saying yes to everybody? What would a church, what would a people look like that took the pressures off themselves to control people, took the pressures off themselves to change people, took the pressures off themselves to, to, to fix everybody around them? It would be a beautiful central part. People coming and people coming into the alignment of the kingdom through God, not us. Amen. And there would be lasting fruit. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just getting there. All right, we, we here. So for a second, and this is just spinning off of where we started in Firestarters today. It, is, it, has been, it has been something within me until just the last couple years when I received just this crazy, radical, ridiculous love. A revelation, a baptism of God's love of just knowing that there's more to anybody than what I can see. There's more to me than what you can see. There's more to the kingdom than what we can see. There's more to the person next to you than what you see. And what we're looking for is what we're going to see. If, if we're sitting there looking for good, we're going to see good. If we're sitting there looking with goggles to try to find the faults in everybody around us, we're going to find lots of faults. I'm just letting you know that right now. If, if you're looking at me to find faults, you're going to find enough of them to keep you busy for a while. I promise you. But what would it look like if we start to look at people the way Jesus looks at people? What would it look like if we were a church that would arise and actually be the example of unity? We got, I got this awesome discussion this week at the Troy Junior High of a mentor program I lead. And, and I lead 36 boys or 40 boys every Wednesday. And we started talking about what, what, is, what is a man? What's the characteristics of a man? And I just started asking them and, and knowing that Martin Luther King Jr. Day was Monday, I said, let's talk about Martin Luther King Jr. as a man. Was he a man? Oh yeah, he was a man. I said, yeah, he was a man. And he stood up for what he believed and he went for it. He had passion. You know, we just started talking about that. And I said, now let's talk about some other people in your life who you would look at, look up to as a hero, as a man. That they, they, they portrayed manly characteristics. They're, they're, they're positive. They're encouraging. Okay, love? I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> but they're sensitive but powerful. Right? They're assertive but yet sensitive. And, and, and one of the boys, he's like, Jesus! Jesus is the man? So like, he is the man. So we openly then begin to discuss Jesus. And this boy said, and the cool thing about Jesus was, he didn't look at anybody based on the sin they were doing. He looked at them for the purpose he had in their life. This was a seventh grade boy named Fred that was telling me this. And he's like, and Jesus would actually like put his arm around people and accept them and love them. And then they changed their ways. But yeah. Like, yeah. And we talked for 20 minutes. We, they were so excited about this talk, they didn't even want to play the game afterwards. Like, let's just keep talking about this. And I was like, hey guys, at the end, I'm sorry we didn't get to the game, but that was a good... No, no, that was awesome. Let's do that every week. This is a mixed room in a public junior high school. It's talking about Jesus and talking about accepting people and loving people and Jesus changing them. So Firestarters today, I just want you to do one thing. I want you to just take, take this off your shoulders. Take this pressure to change people off your shoulders. And what I want us to do is just everybody in this room, just, just pluck this off your shoulders and push it up to heaven. Just the pressure to fix everyone, the pressure to fix your own kids, your own adult kids, your grandkids, the pressure to, to, to be the financial provider for everybody around you, the pressure to, to fix everybody's problems. Just again, just, just take them off. It just, just push them up. Everybody's problem is not your problem. Everybody's sin is not your, not your issue. So many times, you know, in my, in, in my life, I've, I've wanted to convict everybody and, and change them and, and send them a text. You need to remove that from Facebook. That's bad. I don't do that anymore. Because, you know what? If they took it off, they'd be doing it for me. And in their heart, it's not there. So a week later, something similar is going to be right back on there. But if I just pray and I say, you know, God, you can do this. And I'll just send them a text. Man, I love you. I'm so proud of you. So if you ever get one of those texts from me, I may have just seen something nasty on your Facebook. <laughs> or heard something nasty about you. I'd be like, man, I love you. I'm so proud of you. You're amazing. That's, that's just what I do. <laughs> just gave my secret up. I shouldn't have said that one. Uh, but anyway, I, I've, I've quit controlling people. And I tell you what, the pressures of life, the pressures of me having to fix everything has made me so light and so free. Even as a pastor, I don't worry. I don't worry. I live unoffended because I'm so full of the Holy Spirit. And I don't worry. But what I do believe in the faith I do have is that every person that comes in this place is going to experience the power and the presence of Jesus. And they're not going to be able to leave the same. You're going to roll through this parking lot. Some of you, when you grab the door, you felt the power of love. And his name's Jesus. God is love. You felt God coming in this place through the embrace of a hug by somebody that didn't even know you today. God doesn't portray love. He is love. He isn't just a characteristic of love. He doesn't just show you and explain to you what love is. He is love. So what would a church look like that dug the gold out in everybody? That we came in and we were the people's biggest cheerleaders who came in here that we didn't agree with. We've had Hindu, Muslim in here. And I tell you what, they don't leave the same. They don't leave the same. They leave feeling the love of Jesus for the first time in some of their lives. Somebody at Firestarters this morning was sharing that, that they met with somebody and it was a lifestyle that no one agrees with and Christianity certainly condemns a lot of. And, and for the first time, this person felt love 
They said, we've never had a Christian love us before based on our daughter's choice of what lifestyle she lives with another woman. For the first time, we felt love. And I'm just here to say, I'm not, we don't have to compromise our doctrine to love somebody. If anything, it proves our doctrine that God is love. I'm not saying I agree with these things. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I don't have to fix them. I just let Jesus do that. So what would a church who is actually accepted and said, yeah, the best place for your daughter is right here. We'll love her and we'll love her all the way through her deliverance and we'll love her all the way through her walking out the freedom in it. And it'll be her desire, not ours. It'll be her desire, not just us fixing her. Right? Come on, somebody. So, so here we are. I found this verse that just I just wanted to just talk about Central Park. And, and I've never been in New York City, but as I researched this over the last week, what Central Park is and the stats of it, I want to go see Central Park. There's something that's become spiritual to me about Central Park and seeing people the way Jesus sees them and get the goggles of negativity off and get the goggles of condemnation off and the goggles of conviction off and put the goggles of love on. And just like Central Park and every one of you and every one of your family members and every one of your co-workers, there is gold. And it is our job to pull out that gold. How many want to be gold diggers today? Good. Let's talk about some silver then. So Proverbs 25.2 says this. This is where we'll be for most of the text. All right. It is the glory of God. I'm going to read ESV, but NIV will probably be up there, but it's close. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search those things out. Verse 4 says, take away the dross from the silver, the nastiness, the crud from the silver, and the smith, the silversmith, has material for a vessel to build. I'll read your version that you're reading up there. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Come on. Everybody say, I'm a king. I'm king. Listen, I'm going to mess with you for a minute. Jesus says, he calls himself the king of kings. God says he is the king of kings. So if there's multiple kings, who are the kings? We're kings. He's called us to be royalty. He said we're an heir to the throne. And everything that heaven and he has to offer is ours. So we are kings. So when he's the king of kings, we're actually in a place of kingship, receiving the authority and an heir to the throne of heaven. So he says, it's the glory of God to conceal things, but it's the glory of kings to search those things out. And then it says, if the silversmith could remove the nastiness from the silver, now he's got something to work with. Does that sound familiar about the gold digging and the piles of dirt? And when you remove the dirt, now you've got the gold. It's our job to be cheerleaders in this place. It's our job to actually arise to be the unity that people are attracted to. I can turn on the news today and watch any news program about negativity. I can watch any news program about jealousy, about division, about racial division. I can turn on any news program right now and they're hitting it hard with the police and the, and the killings of, of African American people. But what the world is craving is unity. What the world is craving is joy. What the world is craving is peace. What the world is craving is a place to belong, a place to be fulfilled, a purpose. The world around you, the people around you, they're craving, they're crying out for fathers and mothers to arise. They're crying out. 
Rocks are even crying out for the goodness of God, for the revealing of God. So why don't the church arise, become in unity, and actually be the example of what unity looks like, what peace looks like, what joy looks like, what it looks like to have all different races and ability worshiping together, loving each other, and being in love with one another. If we put the goggles on, we're going to find faults. We're going to find these things. But there's a few verses that come to mind. First off, Colossians 3.13, it mentions that, that we make, we're to make allowances for one another's faults. It means that we're all going to fall short, but I am actually going to look at you like a human being. Because human beings mess up. Human beings fall short. In 1 Samuel, when they're going to pick out the king, and David's not even at the dinner table. And it says this, it says that God does not look for faults. And then it goes on to say, it says, man judges the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Amen. So they're at Jesse's house, and David's not even at the table. He don't even have a place at the dinner table. He's out just shepherding the little sheep, because he's a little shepherd boy. He's the runt of the family. And all of a sudden, the king's men, they're like, hey, there's one more here. There's one more here. And you guys, you might be looking at the outward appearance, but God, he's looking at the heart. Come on. And if you know that, David said, it was said later that he has a heart, he, 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 he has a heart after God. Yes. So here we're, we're looking at the faults and we're finding faults. But yet God's telling us to make allowances for faults, to actually let humans be humans. And he'll take care of the rest. And we're to pull up the goal to be cheerleaders, encouragers. Paul was an encourager. It's one of his spiritual gifts, an encourager. Paul was an encourager. You would read his letters. There'd be a little correction, but there would be a lot of encouragement. So he's saying, hey, you're doing great. You're doing great. Don't do this, but you're doing amazing. You're awesome. It was the truth sandwich. Yes. Right? Yes. So many of us, we go straight to the meat. You've got to change this, do this, be this, act this, look like this. And we forget the bread on the outside that you're amazing and you're God's creation. You're made in his image. And you're awesome. No, we, we just... Oh, forget the bread. I'm on a diet. I'll just go straight for the meat. I'm on the Atkins plan. Right? Oh, this is God's plan. And it's goodness. So, so just moving on to a couple other, other verses here. You know, Jesus said, yet while we were sinners, he died for us. Have you ever imagined that? I've talked to so many people. They're like, man, I've got to change myself before I go to church. I've got to get righteous before I get baptized. I said, no, you just need to say yes to Jesus. He'll take care of that. He's the potter, we're the clay. Yet while we were sinners, yet while we were messed up, yet while we were in our mess, He loved us the same as if we were righteous. He loved us the same as if we were holy. He loved us the same as if it was our intended divine design by the nature God put in us. He loved us the same, yet while we were sinners. See, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. The Bible says that we all fall short of the glory of God. You know what that tells me? We were intended for His glory. If we fall short of something, we were intended for it. We all fall short of the glory of God. That means that we were intended for the glory of God. And Christ in me, the hope of glory. So it's our job to pull out people, Christ in them, the hope of glory. So I speak to them until Christ is revealed. I love on them until Christ is revealed in their life. 
I accept them until Christ is revealed. I dream with them until Christ is revealed. Then all of a sudden, they have a hunger and a thirst. They have a hunger and a thirst for something that's good. And no longer the counterfeit methadone or heroin. That's a counterfeit for the real deal of ecstasy and fantasy and greatness with God. Alcohol is a, is a, is a counterfeit for the real thing. There's a new wine that God talks about. There's a new wine where we could be drunk all the time and there's no hangover. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. So it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's telling us it's within reach. So as I look at somebody, I see the gold inside them. And I see that it's Christ in them, a hope of glory. And out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Many of us, we can't get a seed to grow. That's God's job. But we can sure create an atmosphere to prevent it from ever growing. We can put the nastiest, worst greenhouse in this environment where no one will grow, no one will feel loved, no one will feel accepted, and it will be a dictatorship led by me and everybody looks the same, you act the same, you talk just like me. God created unity to bring diversity together in agreement. Not to make everybody the same in a cookie cutter Christian. Stamp, 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 stamp. You ever go to those neighborhoods where every house looks the same? That's cool and all, but God created a diverse creation. We were talking to my kids this week at the dinner table about Martin Luther King Jr. and what he did and, and just what we're living. And I, I sat there at that table with those boys of all different races and colors. And I said, look, you know, there's a lot of junk going on in the media right now. But look at us right here in the same room at the same school together. And I just drank out of the same drinking fountain you guys drank out of. So you can look and say, man, the world's horrible. We've not moved forward. We've not done anything in the last 50 years. And I know some places are still that way. Some places are still back in time. Some places just refuse to change. But I look with goggles from Jesus saying it is better. It is great. We are in the greatest times that's ever existed. We are in the greatest times where creative miracles are easy. Salvations are easy. Love is flowing. And, and, and something is happening in the atmosphere, specifically Ohio, this region right here, where there is good ground, it's fertile, it's good, and life is happening. That's how I'm looking at it. I'm seeing and I'm getting in meetings in the North Dayton area where 25 pastors are coming together leading hearts. There is something to be said about that. Amen. That takes an act of God. I'm not joking. That is a miracle. Amen. <laughs> and it's good. It's good. Out of their belly shall flow rivers of living water. Everyone around you. The church needs to arise. We need to arise. We need to say, you know what? I'm going to be a gold digger. I'm going to love. And I'll just be honest with you. I've seen way more results in the last three years loving people into the kingdom than judging them through it. I've seen so more, many more people sustain, get plugged into a church, even if it's not ours, by loving them and believing them and encouraging them and, and just igniting just a little bit of passion in them instead of trying to fix their problems. Well, you still smoke, so I don't know if you can need anything. I don't know. Let me check our tithing records to see if you can actually be a door breeder. Well, do you have a spiritual gift? If not, then you can't serve on the platform. 
And I'm not, I'm not downing anybody who does that. I know pastors that do that, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is, what would Jesus do? Yes. See those bracelets all the time. What would Jesus do? Would Jesus push somebody out of the church because he didn't agree with them? Or would he pull them in and embrace them? I think the latter. So I just want to just close with two stories. First off is the story of the Garden of Eden. And in the garden, there was a beautiful place. There was a Central Park that was way bigger than Central Park, way better than Central Park. Amen. And in this garden, God created everything in it. Every, every creation, including human beings. And he created Adam and Eve. And, and, and unfortunately what happened was, you know, Adam and Eve couldn't handle all of the freedom and they believed a lie. They came in alignment with that lie. And, and then we know what happened from there. They were cast out of the garden. And there was guardsmen posted there since. And here's one way we've always looked at that. And we've always looked at God being this judging God because we're not worthy enough. We're not good enough. And we, and we couldn't handle freedom. We couldn't handle that choice. And we took the fruit. And now we're just weak, wee little people that God can't trust. And we're sinners. And we just, we can't arise above that because we're always going to be sinners. Where, where's Siri trying to get you to go? <laughs> Why Siri got to be a woman's voice? Seriously, I mean, can I, I know, exactly. I'm like, I can't find out where I'm going, so I plug it into the GPS, and it's a female voice telling me everything I'm doing is wrong. I'm like, come on, could it be a guy's voice? I think that person, that designer, had a lot of humor, and it's amazing. It's awesome. Uh, but anyway, the Garden of Eden. So we've always looked at it as punishment. Punishment to, to, human, to, to, to humans. But here's the deal. There was two trees in that garden. Two trees. The first tree they ate from. If they will or would have eaten from the second tree, it was eternal separation from the Father. So when God, he posted out Adam and Eve and he cast them out and he guarded it. It was protection. It wasn't punishment. Amen. The Father does not want to be eternally separated from anybody. We've always looked at that as punishment, that we're just not good enough. We just, we just can't make it. And one of these days, what a day that will be, we'll just make it into heaven. If I'm good enough, I'll just slide right in. Jesus didn't die on the cross just so you could just slide and make it into heaven. He died on the cross so heaven could also make it into you here on earth. So we've always looked at that, that we're not capable to handle freedom. We're not capable of that. We're just sinners saved by grace. Yes, true statement. But the garden wasn't punishment. It was protection. God wants a relationship with his, father, with his children. God the Father wants the relationship. He wants covenant. He wants to be with you and me. He wants to dwell with us. And it says that actually in the Word it says that He desires for the whole world to come to know Him. He's not trying and sitting with a gavel like Abraham Lincoln on this throne trying to send people to hell and try to divide families and try to, to, to make people have depression. Tooling around with people's emotions and, and flinging hurricanes into the land. That's not a good God. That's not a good daddy. A good daddy wouldn't do it. And he is a good daddy. He's protecting us. He's not punishing us. And he's waiting 
He says, it says Zephaniah 3.17 says he rejoices and he delights in us. He rejoices in us. It doesn't say when we're perfect, he rejoices in us. It says he is rejoicing over you. He's delighting in you. And, and, and I'm just here to say that it's not focused on what you're doing and your circumstances don't determine his mood. He is in a good mood all the time and he's wanting to do good through you, in you, and around you. The last story I want to share, and, and I like the mat thing just to come up on keys or something. And whatever you have worked out. And Jesus, Jesus was the perfect example of acceptance. No matter where Jesus went, no matter who Jesus was around, he accepted people. He loved people. He embraced people. And I just, I can, I can picture the, the woman at the well, the woman with, with full of, of just hurts, habits, and hang-ups. A woman that, that probably had been with many women, that had been married several times, that was probably involved, it's, it's insinuated and even translated into prostitution. And Jesus, Jesus, I would imagine, was a pretty busy man, saving the world and all. But here's what Jesus did. He took time out of his day and he sat next to her and he wrapped his arm around her. He says, I know you. I know all of your husbands. He's saying, I know everything about you. I know where you've been, where you're headed, and where you're going. And he's, he's, he's loving on her. He's healing her. He's delivering her. And he says, and it's okay. I love you. There's so many others. Jesus rode across an entire sea to cast a demon out of one person. He saw the value in people. He saw the value in one person. He had authority. And he's looking to Lazarus. And, and Lazarus is dead. And he spoke with authority and he said, Arise. Arise. He didn't say, Oh, Father, please, if you have any mercy at all, let my best friend raise from the dead. He spoke with authority. And you and I have authority. Luke 9 says, all authority in heaven has been given to him. And he's granted it to us. And even in John, chapters 10 through 14 are really great. But one of the things it says is, it says that he actually tells us that we can do more than he did. So here's the deal. Here's the last story. I think Matt's getting ready here. <laughs> I want you to stand with me. We're good. Jesus. A woman is brought to the Pharisees. And Jesus happens to be around. Jesus is there. And there's a woman caught in adultery. How many are familiar with this story? You can find it in the Gospels. She's caught in adultery. And, and you know... I used to think, well, why? Where's the man at? If, if you and I are logical, we know that adultery requires two people. So we're like, where's the man? Why is the woman taking the heat on this? And I've always, I've always wondered that. But over the last year or two, I, I just really feel that the woman represents the bride. I believe that as I get into this story, and I tell you just the take on it, that maybe you've never looked at it from this view. Jesus was, was, was using this story and, and that she represented the bride of Christ, us, the church, people, the people of God. 
And, and here's, here's what happens through this story. And the Pharisees and the people and the judges, they want Jesus to come down on this woman. And they want them, they want Jesus to, to just put the gavel down on her and send her to hell or something. Man, it really touches my heart what happens here. And, and Jesus starts to write in the dirt. And I've heard this, and I'm just, I'm just going to say this. Starts to write in the dirt. This jacks me up every time. And we used to think that Jesus was writing that dirt, a message to the Pharisees to teach them a lesson. But this was the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And he was writing in her dirt to get down to her level. It meant that he wasn't afraid to get in her dirt. He wasn't afraid to dig through her dirt to find the gold. He wasn't afraid to get dirty, to get messy, and to take that on himself. He was digging in her dirt. And he wasn't doing it to prove a point. He wasn't doing it to teach a lesson to the Pharisees. He was doing it to show her that I'm digging in your dirt. It's okay. I love you. I'm willing to get dirty for you. I'm going to die for you. Amen. The other thing is, a woman in that time who would have been caught in adultery could face stoning. So here she is, full of shame, full of guilt, full of, of being ridiculed and mocked and made fun of. So her head, I'm sure, was down. So she's facing her persecutors. She's facing this culture. Her head's down. What Jesus is doing, he's digging in her dirt. He's finding the gold. He's catching her eye. He's catching her eye to say, to come back up and lift up her chin. Say, it's okay.